Sam, if there's one thing I've said on this podcast many times before, it's that I love audiobooks. They let me bring my stories with me anywhere I go, and I've listened to audiobooks while driving, cooking, working out, traveling, and even recently, kind of weirdly, well, at the dentist. (laughs) Our sponsor, Audible, can help bring your books with you wherever you go. Right now, our U.S. listeners can get a 30-day free trial of Audible, the destination for audiobooks and podcasts, when they go to audibletrial.com forward slash fanbookspod. On Audible, you can download and listen to thousands of audiobooks, including one that I myself narrated and catch up on all of your reading today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash fanbookspod. And to make it even easier, that link is in the show description. Happy listening! This is the Fantastic Books Podcast. The fantasy and sci-fi book review podcast for fantasy fanatics, book nerds, and lovers of lore and stories. Covering some of the most loved fantasy series as well as brand new novels. With your hosts, Anna and Sam. Let's see what we're reading this week. Welcome back, fantastic listeners. This is Sam. And Anna. And this week, we are covering Mistborn, The Final Empire, chapters 24 and 25. And we left Vin at a ball, so we were sort of in the middle of action last time. Yeah, she was on reconnaissance, spying on Ellen and friends. It's not good to spy on your boyfriend. They're not in a relationship yet. <laughs> I know, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. All, they're just talking. All right. <laughs> <laughs> they're in that in-between phase. Yes. I don't think I have any announcements Just a quick reminder for everyone to pick up a copy of .exe, our upcoming miniseries that will be airing over the summer. It was a really awesome sci-fi murder mystery that we read and talked about with the author, Robin Jeffrey. So again, we will drop a link for that in the show notes. If murder mysteries are your thing, this one ticks all the classic boxes. Highly encourage you to pick up a copy. Yes, it was so much fun and it kept us on our toes to the very end. And it really does help support not only the authors themselves but also the podcast if you guys listen to those mini series and buy the books and you can also support our podcast again by checking out our website and our social media pages and leaving us reviews on whatever platform you listen to but i think without further ado we can jump right into chapters 24 and 25 chapter 24 so the blurb at the beginning of this chapter again, as they all are, is from the Lord Rulers, slash supposed to be Lord Rulers, Elendi's perspective. And he's talking about how if he sees suffering and loses the ability to feel empathy towards it, then he's past the point of redemption. And that was, I think, a huge clue for me when we were reading that something severely wrong had gone on with the development of the Lord Ruler and his changing from a human into what he is now. And I think this is a big clue because obviously the person who is the Lord Ruler now is completely blind to everybody's suffering. He has created a world system that is built upon the suffering and the oppression of the Ska. And then it's mirrored later in the chapter when Vin is walking around with Ham and they see all the suffering of the people in the city. So I think it just really hammered home that something very wrong had happened. Yes, obviously on the first read, we're led to believe that the Lord Ruler suffered a major change in personality due to his transformation at the Well of Ascension. Yep. Obviously, by the end, we learned that it was actually the Pac-Man Rashek who had defeated Elendi and had taken the power for himself. Right. So I like these little clues because it does sow so many seeds of doubt of like, well, what did happen? Why is this person no longer feeling empathy towards his people and just sort of creating a lot of confusion about that back plot line without providing so much history. I like that it's like just little tidbits here and there. This is just an aside um, from reading the entire trilogy and just knowing how everything breaks down to. Is this going to be a spoiler for me? Oh, no, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but it's really interesting how we, after the fact, get a lot of the motivations and explanations of what the Lord Ruler went through. You don't necessarily forgive him in any way, but you tend to understand his thought processes, at least in the beginning. 
of okay. when he assumed, when Rashek assumed the power at the Well of Ascension. Interesting. Yeah. I will continue to make my way through the series slowly, slowly, but surely. Although yeah. we've totally gotten distracted reading a different Brandon Sanderson book in the meantime, Warbreaker, which I've read before, but now I'm rereading with you. So we're just inundating ourselves with Brandon Sanderson <laughs> lately. I know. It's been a lot of quality time, but it's been so much fun. I'm loving Warbreaker, but I don't want to get too distracted from what we're talking about right now. No, 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 no. Just throwing out other book suggestions yes, into the mix. always. So chapter 24, there's not a lot that's going on. And even in the annotations, Brandon Sanderson says that this is sort of the last calm before what is known as the Sanderlanche or the Brandon Avalanche of his books, where at the very end, just sort of a torrent of action and plot exposition all happens rapid fire. So this is the pause before that happens. And even in the next chapter we're going to talk about, we can start to see the plot really picking up. Things are going not the way the characters were expecting them to go, and they're forced to make hefty decisions fairly quickly. Yes. One thing I really enjoy about this chapter is we have this comforting exchange of like jovial banter between everyone in the crew. There's a great quote that comes to mind that says, you don't realize that you're in the good times until they're already gone. And this is definitely it, where everyone is enjoying... Just laughter and lightheartedness among the crew, and it's just a fun exchange between everyone. Yeah, they're not really talking about anything in particular. They're making fun of Vin for wearing dresses a little bit, getting used to her role. They're making fun of Doxen for always nagging them about money. It's not a conversation of a lot of substance, but it is that great feeling of camaraderie and Vin finally feeling like she's part of this group. And even at some point during the conversation she thinks about when she first arrived at clubs's shop and stood outside of this group and looked in on this room and she imagines little vin out there being able to look in on herself now and seeing all the progress she's made yeah like how she longed to be part of it right so it's totally understandable that in later books they reference this and romanticize it and i actually like that obviously i haven't gotten to those parts in the other books where they are doing that but from your perspective saying that they romanticize this and remember it fondly i think is an awesome thing because a lot of the times books don't make room for that yeah like even something like the harry potter books where there's a lot of feelings of nostalgia for the readers the characters don't always have nostalgia about the places harry does because he's always like hogwarts is my home but they never talk about like hey remember that time that such and such happened right and that's a very realistic thing for friends to do is to hark back to times that were good. This is, again, like we said, the calm before the storm. So I can see why this is a time that they really idealize. Yeah, for sure. Even Vin has moments of I've come so far where she obviously reminisces back to wanting to belong to feeling part of the crew. But there's even little moments here where She's offered a drink and she's no longer as skeptical before accepting it. Right, because in the beginning when she first met Kelsier, she wouldn't drink anything she hadn't made herself. So even Brandon Sanderson acknowledges this within the chapter and it's just nice to see so much growth out of Vin. One other funny thing that happens in this conversation is that Spook gets this long moment where he's using his lingo i guess you can call it like his, his dialect Eastern street slang <laughs> i know you hate it i love it i think it's fun and unique i don't hate it in like a concept like obviously people speak differently and that's fine i think it's very weird to have in a written piece of work a character that's not understandable that's fair I like that within the annotations, we actually finally get a translation of what's being said, which is fascinating to me. So it starts with Spook saying, nicing the knot on the playing without. Kelsier rolls his eyes saying, losing the stress on the nip, nodding without the needing of care. And then Spook says, riding the rile of the rids to the right. Followed by saying, wasing was of brightness, nip the having of wishing of was this. <laughs> Ever wasing of doing of this. That's Kelsier. Yes. And then Ham chimes in surprisingly and says, 
Ever wasing the wish of having the have, brightening the wish of wasing the not. Breeze and Vin are completely baffled. Dachshund jokingly chimes in, but what he says is apparently nonsense. Yeah. But the actual conversation of what they were saying is Spook saying, it's not nice to play with people like that, referencing Breeze's ability to manipulate people with soothing. And Kelsey responds, oh, don't worry about what he does to you. He's not worth your concern. Then Spook says, you're probably right. Breeze asks what they're babbling about. And then Spook says again, he wants to be clever. He pushes people around because he wants to prove that he is clever. Kelsey responds saying, he's always been like that. And then Ham finishes the whole exchange by saying, he's insecure. I think he worries that he's really not that clever. Which is actually a really interesting moment where everyone's kind of calling out Breeze for what he does. Not directly to him, but it also shows that Spook is a lot more intelligent than we give him credit for. Because up until this point, he's hard to understand and is very much a sideline character. Yeah, he just hasn't had a lot of screen time. No. Within the next two books, we get to see a lot more of Spook and how thoughtful and introspective he is. And by the final storyline, he actually becomes one of my favorite characters. All right, we'll see how he develops. Yes. I think my main frustration is none of that lingo really translated into what Brandon Sanderson said it translates to. You can sort of infer that they're talking about Breeze, but... Spook says, wasing the was of brightness, nip the having a wishing of this. And you would never know that he's saying he wants to be clever. He pushes people around because he wants to prove that he is clever. Right. It just does not get the point across at all, clearly. I think that's my main problem with it, is it's not, it's so far into slang that it's almost a different language. Yeah. And I don't mind people using other languages. Like, it happens a lot in Lord of the Rings, where they use Elvish, but... Like, that's unintelligible to me, and they're not giving you enough context clues to right. understand. So that's my main problem with it. That's fair. It's not that I don't like Spook as a character. No, I, I, I understand your frame of reference. Okay. I just didn't want you to think I didn't like people who I couldn't understand. Oh, no, not at all. No. <laughs> I didn't want to be pegged as someone who's like, oh, I don't understand you if you don't speak English. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Just getting that out of the way. That being said, you know, we have everyone kind of poking fun at one another, enjoying some wine, just a fun night in with the homies. Eventually, they do need to get down to business, though. So they ask about Vin's reconnaissance at the ball, what she's learning. And she's reporting that House Techiel is getting vulnerable and that they are probably going to have to fold up. And one thing that we haven't really talked about before is that the... Great houses have to pay a keep tax, and I didn't realize that. I was like, why don't the people just stay in the city and stop hosting balls? But if they want to continue to stay in the city, they have to engage in the balls and in the business so that they can afford to pay the keep tax, and it creates a cycle. Whereas if they are feeling vulnerable, they're going to leave because they can't afford the keep tax, and then that will remove them entirely from politics and change the playing field for this house war. Right, so it's not just like, oh, we have these paid-off buildings, we live here, that's that. Yeah, so I thought that was a lot more interesting, and it just explains the politics and the logic behind the house war a little bit more than I was expecting. Subtle and clever little tidbits of world building. Exactly. And they're talking about how they're going to keep throwing balls all the way until the end, because it keeps up appearances and it helps you meet with your allies and spy on your enemies. So if people can't afford to stay in this game and play the politics of the game because they can't afford to keep tax, like it it makes sense. Yeah. I don't know why, but that line immediately made me think of, um, you know, they'll keep throwing the balls into the end of the part in the movie Titanic where the musicians are still playing even though the ship is sinking. That's from history, not just the movie. Yes. (laughs) But yes, I agree. They keep up appearances, even in the face of... Calamity. Perfect. Perfect word for that. As the group is continuing some planning, one thing I will say really quick was, it's great that Vin is finally getting some concrete details and information for the crew as she's spending her time as Valette within like high society. Right, we weren't really sure 
what she was helping the group with. Like, she was fulfilling her role, but it was pretty disappointing last chapter and last episode when she found out that everything she'd learned from spying was stuff that Kelsier had already found out. So it's helpful that her role is fulfilling its purpose and providing the intel that they need. Right. And so as they continue to make some plans, Ham has been assigned to go to the Luthadel garrison. And Vin wants to go with. And at first, Kelsier is hesitant about allowing her to go. She makes up a good point. Vin has been able to spend time with a lot of the individual masters of singular crafts, whether it was Breeze, Marsh, Kelsier, and now Ham. You know, he is a pewter arm. By being specifically a misting, he may have a better grasp on how to use pewter in a way that Kelsier or Vin wouldn't have thought to. So she wants to go with them and maybe learn some little useful skills. I like the scene between her and Ham. I think that there's a lot of nuance to the pewter that, again, Kelsier hadn't provided her. It seems like maybe Vin knew it intuitively, but it's nice to have an older member of the crew take the time to explain things to her and and really explain his perspective of being someone who can only use pewter and who is also, unfortunately, having to hide the fact that he has allomancy. Like, you can't just, like, beef up with pewter and, like, be super strong. That's going to be really obvious. Yeah. So he talks a lot about the nuances and the fact that there are times that you can overexert yourself and different little things like that, small tidbits. That, and it's nice to kind of have this dialogue between the two of them. We didn't get a lot of time of just Vin and Ham together. I don't think she spent any time with him alone at all. Right, and we get to see how... Ham is a very authentic personality. He's not like the others where he can be a con artist or have a persona about him. He's just authentically himself and he has no poker face. So everyone he interacts with, it's him being himself, which is very unique compared to the rest of the crew. I really like his personality a lot. And we also learn a lot about his backstory, a little bit more about his family and how he has these aspirations to save up enough money working as a thug or a pewter arm, even though he can't necessarily advertise himself as one to everybody. He can make more money because he is a really strong worker, and he is a really good fighter, and he is sought after quite a bit as hired muscle. So his goal is to save up enough money for his family to move out of Luthadel and far away from the central dominance to a place where they're out of the mainstream society and out of the eye of the obligators. And he actually got this dream from Kelsier. That's what Kelsier wanted to do with Mare. And it's just a shame because it's clearly the dream that never was for him. Whether it was his own greed of always wanting to go on to that next job, seeking another thrill, there's always another secret, so to speak, that prevented Kelsier from achieving a quiet and happy life away from trouble with Mare. I know we don't ever get to see Kelsier with Mare or Ham with his family, but I think you can tell the personality difference. Even just in this book, Kelsier, like you said, is very daring. He is always chasing that next job. He is always pushing the boundaries and the limits. Whereas Ham not only works as a pewter arm and in this underground society in Thieving Cruise, but he has just regular friendships with people in the garrison. He is interested in philosophy. So I think you can picture Ham sort of settling into this quiet countryside life, whereas Kelsier doesn't seem like the kind of character who would ever be able to do that. No, Ham is way more authentic and grounded as a person. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really interesting once we get to the garrison itself, because... Ham is going to talk to people who are his friends, and he finds out in this moment that they're asking him to help them against this rebellion, quote-unquote, a ska rebellion. Right, which ends up being, you know, the army that they'd been raising this whole time. Eden overconfidently sent a major portion of the army over to Holstep and their garrison to attack, and now... The Lord Ruler is setting off the Luthadel garrison to back them up and put a stop to the army. 
Oh, I can't imagine being Ham and Vin in this moment and keeping a poker face. Oh my god, I would immediately flush red. My hands would get sweaty. Like I would not. I'm like Ham. I can't lie. I would not be able to be like, oh, that's rather interesting. I'd be like pale white and go like, oh, I gotta go. <laughs> like it would be completely obvious. At least the shock of it would be pretty genuine, right? Like, right. Saying like, there's a rebellion. Like, oh, holy shit. You know, meaning like, holy shit what is my army doing? Not, holy shit, there's a rebellion. Yeah. So, oh man, I would be just like cold sweat. If I was Vin, I'd like be tugging on Ham's shirt, like, you know, making the side eye at him, like, what's going on? Right. And so there's this man, this captain, I should say, Surtees, who requests Ham's help to go off with the garrison and confront this army. And he only has two hours. They're leaving in two hours. So this is, I think, the start of the Sanderlanch. <laughs> Sanderlanch part one. Oh, yeah. It comes in many, many phases. But the level of action from here on out is just going to exponentially skyrocket. Yeah. It's going faster and faster and faster. And things get more intense from this point onward. Yeah. The pacing definitely increases several notches. I was really surprised Ham agrees yes in the moment to go that he's going to come back after he drops Vin back off. I was really scared for Ham in this section on the first read, because in my mind, I was like, great, he's going to die. This is it. I was concerned that he was going to meet up with the army against his own army, essentially, because he trained them all. And it was going to be a really awkward moment of, do I kill my allies or do I keep up appearances? Mm. So really tough position for him regardless, but he ends up not having to actually face them because... Man, in the next chapter, we will find out what fate has befallen Yedin and his army. Chapter 25. Shit is about to go down. Oh my god. This is a great chapter for it to be the last chapter in part three. I think it really is that fall before the rise again. Yeah, I know we've talked about it before where I thought that book one would be their first attempt against Lord Ruler and they'd fail, and then book two would be the rebuild and book three would be the final battle with the Lord Ruler. That tends to be the formula in fantasy. It's pretty common. It's definitely like an established way to set up a trilogy. So this took quite a turn when what I thought was going to be the end of book one is now here at chapter 25, which is like, just shy of like two thirds of the way through the book. Right. I remember reading this with you going, what? No, no. What are they going to do? What? I'm pretty sure we just closed the book and yelled what like 50 times because (laughs) again, what are they going to do? It had just, man, it just, it just freezes you up. It's okay. We'll come from the beginning. Roll it back. Roll it back. Take it back. Take it back now. So. Ham obviously has delivered the news to Kelsier and friends that Something has gone down with the army, and he has to go with the garrison. Kelsier interprets this as Ham playing the role as being an informant for them within the garrison, but Ham genuinely, I think, just wants to help. He's nervous when Kelsier says, oh yeah, you can be our informant. And I think a really important line here is that Ham pushes back against Kelsier and says he will not turn against the men in the garrison, and he's not going to attack men who think that he's their ally. And that's a huge difference between Kelsier and all of the other crew members is that Kelsier sees anyone who even remotely works for the Lord Ruler as a traitor, as someone who can be killed without any consequence because they have betrayed their class or betrayed their people and sided with the Lord Ruler. Whereas life's a lot more complicated than that. And even Ham was talking about it in the last chapter A lot of these people are just trying to feed their families and do their best in life. And sometimes that just means you have really shit options. Yeah. I really commend Ham for, one, sticking up to Kelsier, but two, just, again, being authentically himself and saying what he'll do and what he won't do. And you just got to give him credit for being himself. When you and I were reading this, we were talking about who we thought we were as characters. Yeah. And I think you are most like Ham. Thank you. And I think it's hilarious because earlier today we took a which Mistborn character are you? And we both got Vin. Which, which is no. Definitely not correct. To be fair, that quiz was very every book quiz ever where it was like, you're presented with options. And it was like quintessential 
There was one that was Harry like, Potter style, where it was like assassinate him, charm him, Gryffindor. Like it was just <laughs> the options were very obvious, like what the outcome would be by selecting each one. Oh yeah, it was a fan made quiz for sure. I was just hoping we would get better results. Right, because I thought by answering it, I was leaning more towards Ham or Breeze with the responses. So then for it to be like, you're Vin, I was like, mm, all, you sure about that? <laughs> you sure about that? <laughs> sure about that? <laughs> but I think you are probably most like Ham of the crew. I don't know who, who am I like? Mm, I hope this doesn't sound insulting, but I feel like my first thought was Dachshund. No, that's who I kind of thought I was, too. Okay. Very organized, very much like, we have to stick to the budget, we have to stick to the plan. Yeah. I think I'm a little more fun than Dachshund. Oh, definitely. But I think I would fill a similar role if I were in the crew. Oh, for sure. You would definitely be band manager. <laughs> <laughs> so. I think you're like Ham because, like, Ham's main stereotype is that he's beefy and strong and therefore probably not smart and i think a lot of people see you and they're like sam's fun and goofy but you have a lot of introspective components to you and you are really good at reading people's emotions the same way that ham is pretty good at talking about like philosophy and having a more sensitive side and then obviously ham is just very authentically himself and you have no poker face <laughs> i don't <laughs> you are just sam here so, i am sam and ham here i am <laughs> <laughs> so as we've been doing throughout the book we'll pop that question into the spotify q a section so we just want to see what our listeners think they are as the characters so tell us who you identify with the most because that's always my favorite part of books is finding a character that i really can connect with as an aside when i was taking that quiz too some of the questions were kind of hard to answer where it was asking you you know like a confrontation outbreak is taking place you know what would you do and like one of the answers was like push off a coin and leap into battle i'm like if I all of a sudden in that moment had the ability <laughs> to do that with my personality type, I don't think I would just spring into action like that, especially if I didn't know how to use powers. Yeah, the the quiz was weird. It, you know? Half the questions were like real life and then half were set in the books as if you had allomancy, but it was just, it was confusing to me. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm Vin. No. And you are definitely not Vin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm way too trusting. Oh my god, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Unsolicited beverage? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mind if I do. <laughs> <laughs> Vin is very adamant in this moment when they're deciding what to do, and she wants to go with Kelsier, even though she doesn't realize what his plan is. Kelsier tells Vin to have an unsolicited beverage. <laughs> Which is essentially five pewter beads in a glass of water. And she's very surprised by this. She, you know, immediately is thinking, five? Like, what are we getting into? She thinks they're going to be taking a canal boat. Right. But they are going to be running. And I love the part where she's like, but we're not, we're not going to take a canal boat? And Kelsier just says, why would we need a boat? Yeah. I.e. the Mistborn. We're Mistborn, honey. Like, we're going to be flying. Think outside the box a little, Vin. We can do so much more than regular people. So they end up running all the way. Kelsier leaves Dachshund in charge. He tells Ham to go back and meet up with the garrison to get that perspective of things going on. Breeze is left to make a list of all the hideouts where they were recruiting and warn them that people may tattle on them soon if they get caught i do enjoy the delegation that takes place where even a lot of the smokers in clubs's shop are sent out to warn people of what's happening right so, it is all hands on deck at this point yeah the beehive is swarming like people are being <laughs> sent to do things fires have to get put out all over the place right so we end up following kelsier and vin on their journey and what they are doing is running to the garrison that has been attacked. They are in the middle of the day putting on their mist cloaks and running through Luthadel to the gates. They just don't care anymore. This is an emergency situation. They are running. She realizes that the mist cloaks are part of 
this sort of understanding that goes on with like the guards and the noble people to ignore them but she just feels so exposed doing it during the daytime and something that's really funny is they're flying through the air using their pushing and pulling to like leap over the city walls and everything and this is the first time Vin has ever used her abilities during the day when there's no mists and she can actually see how high up she is and how fast she's falling towards the ground. And how disorienting that is. <laughs> so it's really scary. And then they are just running, running all the way to the caves. Kelsier tells them that it's going to take 16 hours. Yeah, so buckle up. This is like an ultra marathon. Absolutely intense. They're running so fast that without the pewter, she would have stumbled and fallen over. It's giving her enough balance to hold herself up, but she's just got like blurry cartoon legs at this point. Yeah, it's very Roadrunner. <laughs> oh, yeah. One thing that I totally want to talk about, too. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly embarrassing, but... But awesome. So we do long distance running. We run half marathons. And sometimes during our training, we will talk about saving our pewter beads <laughs> so stupid and what we dorkily mean by that is we'll have like running gel packets that have sugar and caffeine in them oh is that what you've been talking about this whole time yeah i was just talking about like the mental game of running every time oh i mean that's definitely part of it too like, you've got to have a little bit of store of energy left for that last little bit. Yeah, just a little bit for the way back. And I'm always like, if Vin can run for 16 hours, I can run for two hours. Yeah. It's fine. I can do it. I can do it. So we dorkly idolize our heroes even when we do our physical activities. <laughs> because it just seems so physically impossible. Like, their feet are exhausted. She's exhausted. If she stops running she feels like she should almost keep running at this point because it's become such a weird flow state yeah like her brain is just off and every once in a while i get like that on a good run it does happen it's like it's a runner's awesome. high it's great they do pass two misrafes on the way too so they're just flying through scenery and whipping past everything there's a really funny line at one point where she thinks to herself, like, I hate Kelsier because of how <laughs> exhausted she is. She thinks she's going to die at one point. There's a When she's thinking that, too, she's like, I hate Kelsier. How long has it been since the sun rose? Minutes? Hours? Weeks? Years? <laughs> and totally, sometimes when we're running, I'll look down and I'll be like, oh, it must have been like an hour of running. And it's just... It's been like 15 minutes. Been like 15, yeah. So <laughs> I understand where Vin is coming from, absolutely, in this situation. When they eventually do stop, she's very confused. She lets her guard down a little, and she's no longer flaring her pewter. So all of a sudden, she just gets really fatigued and overwhelmed. And totally Kelsier, disoriented. Kelsier yells at her to flare her tin now, and so the pain snaps her back to reality and lucidity. It's intense, and with her tin, she can also hear voices she hears yelling and the sounds of battle so they haven't made it all the way to the caves but they've essentially found what they're looking for she can smell blood they go up to this hilltop and they can see a valley speckled with corpses people are still fighting it's such a disaster their army finished off that garrison they initially attacked and tried to go back to the caves but obviously we know that other garrisons have been called to action so this other place, Valtru, has sent its garrison, and now they're attacking Eden's army, and it is just an absolute slaughter. It's a massacre, and it's at the tail end now where soldiers are surrendering, but they're still getting murdered, and it's just a damn shame. And so this was a disaster from the beginning, not in the concept that maybe Eden's men wouldn't have taken the first garrison, but the whole point of the army was that it had to remain a secret, that they weren't to be used until the time was right to unleash them in Luthadel. Right, they needed to go to Luthadel only. Like, I think Yedin maybe thought that they were getting strong enough to take out more cities than Luthadel, but from Kelsier's whole plan's perspective, they were just a distraction in part of a larger plot. They needed to attack just Luthadel. So they could be distracted to do the ATM heist. Right, and now what the hell are they going to do? Yeah. This is a mess. There's an amazing part right at the end of this 
section in the chapter where Vin and Kelsier are watching the battle. And I think this really shows that Vin has learned from her previous experiences with Kelsier. Because last time she followed him into Credit Shaw, it ended up with her getting injured. And that's when she first said, like, oh, we're not invincible. And then in this moment, Kelsier goes to run towards the battle. I don't know what he thinks he can do, but... Well, it's that sense of loyalty. He's like, these are my men. This was my army. Even though he raised it for Yedon, there's that familial pride behind it. Exactly. And, you know, he got these men so rallied and hopeful because he made them believe that he was bestowing a supernatural powers or b- abilities to them. There's also all of this mysticism swirling about Kelsier and the 11th medal. So these people just had an inflated sense of ability. Yeah. But Vin says, and this is one of my favorite lines because it's such an important moment. And I think it's hard, especially to be a young person standing up to your mentor and someone who's older than you. But Vin has to say, Kelsier, you're not invincible. You can't stop this army by yourself. And you can't save those men. And the chapter ends later, we're going to get to it, with Kelsier talking to the character Menace, who has a similar conversation with him but from an older person's perspective and i like seeing the two perspectives of vin saying it's pretty helpless you can't save them and then menace saying you can't save them but they made the choice to go into battle on their own right so are you as responsible as you believe you are yeah and that's an important moment for kelsier later on i will say this i do appreciate your argument of vin's growth saying you know, we're not invincible. You can't do this on your own. You're only one man. And without giving too much away, in the other books, we do see Vin not heeding this type of warning. Oh, even at the end of this book, when she runs off on her own? Yeah. But again, you almost see the old Vin in her where it's too high of an obstacle run away. Yeah. So, you know, Vin and has the grown a lot. Exactly. That was the point I was going to make. Oh, sorry. No, it's perfect. So, again, Kelsier trying to do the impossible, yet Vin forever being the realist, trying to keep him and herself safe. So, unfortunately, they leave the army to be slaughtered and make their way to the caves to see if there's anyone left. One thing that I think is really interesting before we shift to the part with the caves, in the annotations... Brandon Sanderson talks about how he planned on killing the army off from the very beginning of his story building. Like, this is going to be something really important because it really messes up all of their plans. Something I think is pretty interesting because we have talked about how he had to go through so many drafts is that initially he had talked a lot more about the plot being focused on the ATM heist and not so much the development of Yidin's army and capturing the city and taking on the Lord Ruler. In his initial drafts, his readers were like, yeah, whatever, the army's dead, it doesn't really matter. It's not a big deal. And it needs to be such a pivotal point in the plot where the characters now have to say, like, what are we going to do? It should theoretically be over. Yidin is dead. Their employer is dead. The army's gone. And we see that in the subsequent chapters now with the final, obviously, draft and copy of Mistborn. The crew's pretty lost. Yeah, it feels like a major blow. They plan on giving up. I think without this being such a huge blow to their plan, it wouldn't have made a lot of sense. Yeah, I agree. Now we can talk about going to the caves. (laughs) Yeah, because this part's actually pretty cool. As they make their way to the caves, there's an interesting moment where Vin runs ahead of Kelsier. And he's saying, like, what are you doing? It's empty. There's nothing here. But she is actually stronger than Kelsier. She heard something with her tin-enhanced ears that he couldn't hear. She heard voices. And they saw a little bit of light. And who do they come across but Captain Demu? who we've met earlier when Kelsier came to inspect caves. And interestingly, the first time Kelsier came, he really hammered home that even he needed to have passwords asked and he was not above their regulations and their rules. And this time... Comes waltzing in, Captain Demu demanding what the password is. He's worried that there are enemies that have infiltrated the caves. And instead, in classic Kelsier fashion... 
he strides forward saying, I need no password. Come on, Kelsier. <laughs> it felt very Lord of the Rings to me. Oh, I could see that. I kind of read it as like a brushing it off. Like, I don't need a password. Not like a grand statement of like, I need no password. It felt you very, shall not pass. Yeah, it felt very like that or I am no man. But <laughs> very epic statement. Yeah. I mean, take it as you will. Everyone can interpret it in their own way. True. Unfortunately, in this moment, it's totally ignored because Demu's so shocked to see Kelsier and ugh, it sucks because he's like, oh my gosh, Kelsier, you're here. Does that mean we won? The army succeeded? He doesn't even respond. And Demu is embarrassed then because he's like, oh, well, I stayed behind because I thought that would be better. I thought that would be what you would have wanted, Kelsier. Yidin is the one who set the orders to go march on this garrison. So poor Demu's caught in the middle of trying to still impress Kelsier, thinking he's totally disappointed him. When in reality, he did the right thing because one, he's alive, but two, at least there's a small fraction of the soldiers that are still alive. Right. Unfortunately, as they say, it's a lot of people who are either before their prime or past their prime. Classic trope. Yeah, the young and the old, all your like prime-aged, strong, fit soldiers are dead now. Yep. So even though they do have these few remaining soldiers, it's not gonna work. No, the like, plan's it, busted. The plan's over. They went later and checked to see if there were any survivors, but they found Yeden's head on a spear up on a pike so it's it's over it's donezo kelsier tells demu and the remaining soldiers that they need to flee the caves now grab whatever provisions you can and to their credit i think they anticipated something like this because they all had bedrolls and like two weeks worth of rations like at the ready yeah thankfully they were ready to roll because they end up evacuating the caves in case further garrisons come and try to flush them out and they end up having to just go out and survive in the mists for a little bit until Kelsier comes up with a plan. Which, one, is terrifying. Two, I would be horrified of the idea of, like, mist wraiths getting me in the night. Oh, yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. Vin's sleeping pretty well because, obviously, they ran for 16 hours and she's still a child. So she's completely exhausted. Good night. <laughs> Kelsier's sitting up in the mists. He's definitely having emotions about feeling responsible for the situation, but also frustration and a sense of confusion about what to do next. Oh, he's brooding. Oh, yeah. But this is when Menace comes in. And I like that there's this callback to Menace, the guy from the prologue. I yes. completely forgot who he was. And even Menace in this section has to reintroduce himself. Kelsier's like, do I know you? And he's like, well, sort of. You like kind of recruited me, but I was from Lord Tresting's plantation, which is the plantation that Kelsier took out in the prologue. This is the debrief, as it were, that Kelsier has between himself and someone who's older and wiser. Kelsier has been playing the older, wiser character for the whole book now, so it's nice to see someone who he can talk to to give him a different perspective. Yeah. Because he also hasn't been letting a lot of his crew members in emotionally or fully in on his plans so it's kind of nice to have an outsider have this moment with him yep so menace brings up the fact that he tried to dissuade kelsier from making trouble this is one of your favorite lines here yes where kelsier says troublemaking is just about the only thing i'm good at menace do you resent what i did there what i forced you to become menace paused then nodded but in a way I'm thankful for that resentment. I believed that my life was over. I awoke each day expecting that I wouldn't have the strength to rise, but, well, I found purpose again in the caves, and for that, I'm grateful. I really enjoy this line because hardship can befall you, but it doesn't mean that it's over. It can provide an opportunity for growth and change at any stage of life. That's exactly what just happened to Kelsier, too. Yeah. Hardship befell him, but it doesn't mean it's over. The plot is still going to go forward. The only way it is able to go forward, though, is because Menace helps him get over his sort of sense of pride and grief combined. Because Kelsier is taking responsibility for this army's destruction and all of the death. 
<laughs> Manus kind of puts him in his place and says, don't think so highly of yourself. The soldiers got themselves killed. Kelsier may have been their motivation and their hero, but they made the choice themselves to go into that battle. That's the way that things are going in this world. Menace at this point says, like, you did a great job, Kelsier. You're going to give us something that the Rebellion can talk about for years. This is one of our best successes. And I think this is the point where Kelsier realizes, like, no, it can't be over. Like, you can't tell me that I've succeeded when 5,000 people have died. That's just not how this is going to have to play out. I can't accept this mentality that... This is the greatest victory the Scott have known in decades, that they're so conditioned for a thousand years that death and despair are the only ways in the final empire that this small act of rebellion of dying but fighting is a victory exactly it's so much like a a moment where someone says you can't do it that kelsier immediately is like oh no no i'm gonna do it and right at the end of the chapter he says that wasn't a victory menace i'll show you a victory and the chapter ends with the line he wasn't going to walk away. He wasn't finished yet. Not by far. Yes. So it gives you that amazing moment of like defeat combined with hope, which is a perfect spot for your heroes to be in in this point in a book, like rock bottom so that they can only go up from there. And they're going to hopefully win despite the odds being completely against them. And I just love that things just didn't go according to plan, to be honest with you. Yeah, you need to get knocked down a peg for the, the struggle and the ambition to have any value. Exactly. And it's hard because even Brandon Sanderson says in his annotations, Kelsier is not the kind of character to have self-doubt or a lot of soul searching. So you have to have this happen really rapidly for him. And I think he is the kind of character who would respond to somebody saying, well, you can't do it. So then he would immediately be like, fine, I'll show you. I will do it. No more powerful motivator there is than spite. Yeah, I think that sums up Kelsier very, very well. All of the other characters at this point see the plot as being over, see their plan with Eden as done and dead, and Kelsier is doubling down saying, absolutely not. We're in this for the long haul. And that's how part three of the book ends, which is an amazing part to end a part at, essentially. Yeah. Brandon Sanderson has a little bit of notes on part three, some of which pertain to the plot and some of which are just kind of dropped in here. So he said part three is a really good part for character growth. It's a little bit slower with the action. So I totally agree with that. Vin doesn't get to use her allomancy as much, so she has to spend more time with the other characters. So we see interpersonal relationships growing. We see her relationship with Ellen growing. But with this wrench thrown into their plans, the rest of the book is just not going to be the same. So again, I really like this way that the plot is going is differently paced than a trilogy usually goes. But another note that he includes in his annotation are some notes about Vin's name and Vin's character origins that I thought were pretty cool. Yeah, he writes that Vin's name tends to have more of a masculine connotation in the name of a hero. Well, I think like Vin Diesel, yeah. a lot of people would associate. And originally Vin was a boy when he wrote the whole book. But then a lot of the issues that Vin's character was having, like the abandonment and her attitude just didn't really work quite as well. And as soon as he flipped it and tried writing her perspective as a female hero, he was like, yep, that was that was meant to be. Yeah, very interesting. The process of character building and development. And then for her name itself, he felt like a quick, short name would be important for the hero because it indicates her plain base background, simple and straightforward. Yeah. And that sums up Vin as his character. But I really like that this is a book with a strong female lead. I know sometimes we make fun of authors, especially on the internet, who are male, who write female characters. And it's usually like, over-sexualized or like focused on things that don't make any sense with the character and i like that vin seems like a pretty real human being to me especially with all of her conflicts of like am i vin the street urchin am i vin the allomancer am i vin the 
high class socialite. Mm. And I think that's a lot of things that women struggle with is like you don't need to pick one persona. You can be a lot of different things. Like you can enjoy like fighting, but you can also enjoy being fancy and having dresses. And you can be high class in sometimes and enjoy like parties, but you can be low class and enjoy roughing around with your friends and being silly. And I like that Vin does have a lot of character development and growth, but at the same time still is full of doubt about who she is because she doesn't ever have to pick. Yeah, she's definitely a very multifaceted and complex character. I like the way that she's been written. I think she's a great example of a female lead. Yeah, and throughout the trilogy, her character arc is phenomenal. I think she's one of my favorite protagonists in fantasy. Okay, all right. I will get I will get to the end of this trilogy one day. One day. (laughs) One day. But this brings us to the end of chapter twenty-five, the end of part three, and unfortunately the end of this week's episode. Yes, and after this episode will be our one hundredth episode. Woohoo! And we're going to leave that a bit of a surprise because we want everybody to tune into it and give it a listen. But we had a lot of fun recording it and we hope that you have as much fun listening to it. And most of all, I just can't believe we've done 100 episodes of this. I know. That's absolutely mind boggling. <laughs> so, so many. But we are always having so much fun. We love connecting with our listeners and other readers on the Internet. And that's just been one big part of this journey that's made this podcast so fun for me and makes me want to do another 100 episodes. Definitely. So rewarding and enriching discussing our favorite books and just connecting with the fandom authors and everyone in between. So as I always say, until next time, listeners, happy Happy reading. reading. Thanks, listeners. If you're looking for more, Check us out at fantasticbookspod.com, where we have book reviews, reading list suggestions, merch, and you can even send us a message. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram at fantasticbookspod. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks. Thanks. Golden Rise Media.